Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. In this episode, I speak to Victoria Vivichenko on Ukraine. We dig behind the headlines to understand more about Ukrainian history and identity, the stories we're not hearing about, and the art of the people's diplomacy. So welcome, Victoria. It's an honestly an absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Anna Joy. It's a pleasure. It's a pure pleasure to be with you today, guys. You're welcome. You're welcome. So let's dive in. Tell us about yourself, where you're from, how you spend your time right now, and also your connection with the UK. It's a pleasure. I'm an associate professor at uh, also uh, program director for security studies for Center for Defense Strategies. Uh, So based between UK and Ukraine, to be precisely, because it's, uh, of course, uh, uh, United Kingdom hosts me now also as a researcher at risk uh, fellow, that the one I became at the end uh, of last year, beginning of this year, to be precisely. So, of course, hybrid warfare, European Union, Euro-Atlantic integration, UK-Ukraine relations, something that are the buzzwords for my daily job. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm sure there'll be buzzwords throughout our conversation. I wanted to just start at the beginning, actually. And as you all know, many people in the UK are obviously hearing about Ukraine all the time now, but won't necessarily have visited. And I just wanted to almost rewind and and hear, hear your description of Ukraine. Tell us about its culture, its history, what's distinctive about it, what we don't hear when we hear the headlines. Um, I will start with the last part, Anna Joy, if I may. Of course, you hear each and every news, mostly British news or any other country who might be listening to us as well, is just uh, the uh, the news on war, on uh, uh, the attacks happening, missiles attack, like this evening when we are recording, there were... 51 person died in the cafe uh, mm-hmm. when in a small village in Kharkiv. But it's not everything that we should know about Ukraine. It's a big country where the territory is actually four times bigger, if not five, uh, as the United Kingdom. Uh, it's uh, Of course, uh, it has totally different uh, history in comparison uh, to United Kingdom because we also have a different geographical location. You are, guys, uh, mostly uh, on the sea. We also have sea, but uh, it's Black Sea and the Azov Sea. You have some mountains and we do also have mountains, the Carpathian Mountains and the Crimean Mountains. You have a big and fantastic London as the capital. We have Kiev, an amazing, innovative uh, center of all of the cultures, very diverse, multicultural. And uh, even uh, now when we have a lot of challenges, especially the security ones, starting with the full-scale invasion last year. Uh, we never uh, stopped talking about how rich uh, Ukraine is uh, in culture. 
and how uh, diverse this cultural background is. We definitely have a lot of things to visit. So it's not only Kiev, Lviv, Odessa, or Dnipro. There are many other cities. For example, I'm from Vinitsa, which is a half a million uh, city, a thousand, sorry, half a million um, inhabitants of the city. Innovati, we have IT hubs, we have medical hubs. Uh, we definitely um, a country where young people love uh, to develop themselves, and of course they are very creative. I think you heard about how much uh, creativity was very much into the focus of Ukrainian resilience, and that's mm. also a part of our history since long time ago. I know that, um, I mean, it's definitely not in the all of the British news that you hear about Ukrainian history. One of my favorite periods, of course, is the Kiev Rus period, which is uh, dates back to the uh, 8th, 9th century of, uh, uh, of this millennium, let's say, and uh, how much uh, and how uh, cherishing we are uh, deeper into culture of understanding how uh, it is Kiev, where, where its roots coming from, who inhabited Kiev that time, um, the tribes that were there, how much, of course, we were always fighting for our land throughout all of that uh, history when Kiev became the capital and actually a uh, cultural uh, uh, capital, uh, no matter what, how all other developments in the Western, Central or Northern Europe are going, Kiev uh, started to be from the 10th century uh, and so on, uh, uh, the historical, geopolitical and geostrategic capital, of course, trying to expand its territories, of course, trying to fight uh, for its territories, uh, uh, trying to, of course, enrich its language uh, and uh, uh, religion as well. Of course, uh, we are very, very much related to the Byzantium uh, history, uh, let's say, where Constantinople was, what we said, the religious capital that time, and then it moved to uh, Kyiv city is the capital of uh, that uh, type of the world, what we say, the Christianity of the Eastern Europe. Uh, and of course, uh, some more periods which uh, relates already to the 19th and especially 20th century, when Ukraine was fighting for independence and actually got that one. Uh, um, of course, throughout the courses of the First World War, starting from 1914, in parallel to what we say the geopolitical shifts, there were, of course, national shifts happening on current territories uh, of Ukraine, which definitely, therefore, very often, when we are celebrating the days of independence this year in August or last year in August in particular, we are saying about restoration of our independence which means we are dating back, referring to that period of the First World War, when even for a short period of time, like Baltic states, if you do not know, they also uh, celebrate the same thing. So they do not celebrate the Independence Day, but they celebrate the restoration of the Independence Day. We are trying to echo to that period of the being Kyiv, but not only other cities on the western, southern, central, but eastern parts of our territories uh, are developing economically, politically, and culturally, and socio uh, societally, of course. And the most important period, of course, uh, started uh, from 1990s, to be precisely from the independence when we got. And uh, even if uh, it was a very challenging period after the Soviet Union, 
and dependence on what we say the Moscow is the center and they've been the center for everything for planning especially for the plant economy uh, for uh, cultural raising awareness and uh, imposing of language because it was still a policy that Ukrainian language was undermined and uh, uh, the Russian language was tried to be as the leading one. But the key word here, tried to be. Ukrainians never denied their roots and, of course, uh, the ancestors that we have, what kind of uh, uh, grannies or grandparents we had. We tried to elaborate that also um, in the 90s of the 20th century. And, of course, uh, the most important period was starting within the revolution of Deglity in 2014, when Ukraine, as a transition economy, for those who do not know, it means that the economy that is developing into what one planned economy state to the democratic or fully democratic one, uh, uh, we fight for the independence and, of course, uh, the president that uh, evolved into changing the dynamics of what the Ukrainian nation wanted. We wanted to be a part of the European Union and the aspirations uh, to be uh, developing according to the European integration perspectives. And um, uh, the president that I am referring to is uh, Mr. Yanukovych, who fled the country that time. And uh, that's why the revolution of dignity started absolutely the new episode, the new page of, in our history, in order to um, demonstrate to the world that Ukrainians are not as we were communicated former Soviet Republic. We already a new democratic state with its traditions, ambitions, goals and development, and of course cultural heritage. Last but not least uh, is a very painful but still very necessary and uh, prosperous and uh, very, what we say, dreaming page we opened last year uh, when uh, the full-scale invasion started. How paradoxical it doesn't sound, but it's a new page definitely. It's a new page of transformations. We never stopped reforming ourselves. We never stopped dreaming of being part of uh, European Union. I know it sounds a bit awkward in terms of Brexit, <laughs> but still, uh, or your Atlantic inspirations, which is a part already of our goals in the constitution of Ukraine. And uh, dreaming uh, and acting uh, and fighting. That's kind of three words that uh, I can explain how my country is living these days. That is an incredible summary. <laughs> I knew you would really help us get under the skin. And and that I think that really helps us understand, and we'll go on to it later, some of the, the character and the fight and the response of Ukraine. You've talked, of course, about the moment of the full-scale invasion. And I wondered if you could tell us your own personal story from that. Um, if it's not too traumatic to to go there, but but how was that for you, and what was happening at the time? What then happened? Uh, what did it feel like? When the full scale invasion happened, I was in Kiev, as the majority or as and other Ukrainians in their cities or respectful homes, whatever they are living, villages, communities. And um, 
the decision to uh, flee the country was actually a very pragmatic one because uh, uh, I'm living near a very critical infrastructure and therefore just focusing on, let's say, safety measures for myself, but never stopping working in advocating for Ukraine was my top priority. So therefore, I had personally to leave the country um, for some period of time uh, because uh, we couldn't understand in the first days of the invasion how it will evolve. And I definitely understood that I need a clear mind and brain. Um, I didn't tell uh, to you, Anadja, but uh, uh, we were talking to that in our informal conversation. I'm a uh, free uh, Italian speaker, so it means I'm fluent in Italian language and cooperating mostly with Italian media. So therefore, to have a good connection, and actually uh, I took it as my personal challenge, also professional challenge, to never stop talking about what was happening in the Ukrainian cities, uh, communities, uh, in order to overcome uh, the Russian propaganda that was literally in the first hours, but also days, sometimes week, telling to some of uh, the countries that it never happened. So it was some fake photos or bombings and something. I remember that uh, commenting on one of the prominent um, Italian TV challenge, they were literally telling me, we do not believe that. Can you open the camera and show me that is happening? So that was uh, wow. basically uh, how much show uh, uh, people had. They couldn't believe, which was absolutely something we couldn't believe, how much uh, uh, one prosperous democratic country can be attacked uh, absolutely blatantly, uh, in a in a second, and then you see one building, and in the second second you do not see it, or uh, how much uh, of uh, chaos was happening in the mindset of uh, uh, some of Western uh, communities because uh, there was so much information confusing, uh, basically that uh, importance of being present on uh, foreign media and literally telling the truth. Uh, telling the facts and the evidence that we were observing was actually the top priority. So therefore, it was literally very important for me not to stop this uh, this uh, literally <laughs> a job uh, on various channels reporting. And therefore, for that, you just literally needed a clear mind and hat. Uh, it didn't happen in the first days. Uh, it happened in the mid of March already when we understood that literally we couldn't go and the conditions, the health conditions of some of my family members very much deteriorated. So that was kind of uh, the second push, you know, like to live for some period of time, at least to try to balance ourselves, to count down continue working professionally and uh, contribute as much as I can. Um, Anadja, you have to understand that not uh, I'm the person whose gun is words, or actually are words. So my power is in my words. So if I literally have this talent, I decided myself to use it at utmost. So therefore, uh, continuously talking, <laughs> uh, explaining, presenting the arguments, uh, the narratives that can be understood in the various media, that was my, uh, let me say, uh, way of how I contributed to the resilience of Ukraine. Yeah, and and that I was really struck when we first met, that 
I was really struck by that. That's something you've continued to do, isn't it? Uh, right up to today. And, and actually the enormity of that task of keeping Ukraine on the radar of other countries, of keeping the interest, of keeping the clear communication so that it's the actual facts rather than other stories being fed in. Um, it's not an easy job, is it? <laughs> and, and I wondered if you could, yeah, tell us more about that. That gave me a real insight into, into the challenges of, of an invasion and then a war that, that, keeps, that keeps going. You know, Anna Joy, you're absolutely right. It's a tough job to be an advocate or to provide the advocacy because uh, perhaps someone can think that, yeah, going abroad, you have a free life, you don't have bombs or you don't hear sirens. It's it's true. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that uh, this idea of being passionate about your country and delivering uh, the true stories about it uh, would stop it. Each and every morning of all of our Ukrainians is starting with going to the social media and literally seeing who is alive, which premises are alive, what was happening during the night when uh, the majority of the sirens are happening. So it means the missiles attack or drone attacks are happening. So basically it's a daily routine that we were working and, uh, and living. So working and living 24-7 like that is definitely a tough thing, and uh, it's not only me. Uh, I don't. I cannot contribute it only to myself, but at least I can talk about my own experience in that. Uh, difficult for sure. Interesting, of course, because you are. Uh, I was challenging myself to talk uh, that time not in UK but in other countries, especially European countries, who were uh, trying to develop the what we say support lines not only humanitarian, the military supports, and uh, talking not only through the diplomatic channels that the majority of the Ukrainian diplomats were doing, uh, but also through expert channels, which uh, is important in order to talk to communities and wider public, and as well as talking to media. That's a priority because, as I already told you in some minutes ago, understanding how much damage pain, sorrow, but at the same time, opportunity never to stop uh, in order to have the invaders on the territory. That was the main message and mission that we did. That's why when we met this year, the same messages continued, the same goals sorry, continued, but the messages were slightly different because, of course, uh, uh, the development of the events in Ukraine, as well as reforms, as well as chances to renew itself, now stopped. And we also had to communicate these positive stories. Uh, they are, and they are not so much in the media, which is interesting enough. We know these uh, rules of the media that you have to either report something very bad, you know, because then it's catchy, that has it more likes, uh, you know, and it provokes negative emotions. But it's not so much positive that the media covers the stories from Ukraine, how much Ukrainian entrepreneurs even residing either in Ukraine, in different regions, or outside of Ukraine, contributing to the economy, how much they are trying to support uh, through our volunteer channels, the territorial defense units, 
how much they are the stories of uh, how the kids within their video gaming uh, techniques uh, were operating the drones and shooting uh, uh, the enemy's drones. So these are exa uh, exactly the examples of something that uh, is not so much in the media, but it should be there. Because it says, uh, because uh, yes, we have the war. That's true, and we started. Uh, uh, we didn't start it. Uh, start this war. It was the aggressor who came in our territory in 2014, within the illegal annexation of Crimea, and then trying to uh, catch the whole of the territory, starting from 2022. Uh, but it's uh, also important to say how much. Uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians are given the chance to develop themselves, progress, being flexible. How much of Ukrainian businesses, micro, small, medium enterprises, redesigned and actually literally redeveloped themselves? Uh, of course, some of them lost, but those who were resilient enough and credible in their new ways redesigned their capacities logistically, economically, in production lines, um, uh, physically being transferred to other regions like western or central parts of Ukraine or relocated completely, how the people operate and of course the stories of how the families have been divided because uh, of uh, the war but also how much uh, the children are gaining from the experience also the British one, learning the language, diving into the culture, contributing uh, to understanding of uh, British people, Ukrainian people, and vice versa. I think it's the best, uh, <laughs> what we say, Erasmus program ever <laughs> for everyone happening <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, on such a scale. And uh, it was literally happening to the majority of the countries of the European Union. Uh, not only European Union hosted Ukrainians, but as, as I already mentioned, United Kingdom, United States, Canada, I know even Japan, some Asian countries. I know that some of the Ukrainians moved to Australia, to African continent and to South American continent, which is now very important when we talk uh, about disinformation trends, waves of uh, malinformation or misinformation. It doesn't matter whether, how it's been created or by whom. Uh, um, regarding Ukraine or its future or its ambitions or what we say the word fatigue is very much uh, coming into some of uh, populistic or political party strands, doesn't matter which country and where, uh, we are very much relying uh, to this, uh, what we say, popular or people's diplomacy uh, connections and uh, the efficiency of sports or how much culture and cultural representatives, uh, art, dancing, any kind of sport that you take, the representatives of them as stars contributed to that. Uh, that's how we are telling the world that we are fighting. We are continuing to be democracy, whatever or so, no, uh, whatever what someone or some some bodies are trying to say. Yeah, that's, the people's diplomacy is fascinating, isn't it? I've been really struck by that. You know, whether it's Eurovision, um, the other week, Radio One, which is, of course, our, one of our big radio stations, doing a Europe dance show that included broadcasts from Ukraine, sport, you see Ukraine everywhere. And that's a, that's really interesting to hear that it's actually... That's actually deliberate and it's purposeful and it's 
understood as something really important. I Obviously, this is a podcast and some people will be listening back in the future. But right now at the beginning of October 2023, could you give us just a, a few headlines on how would you summarise right now the situation of what's going on in the war, where things are at, where they might be headed? Um, it's very interesting to talk to the future, you know. <laughs> That's a very interesting perspective. <laughs> All right. We are still in October 2023 from me and Anna Joy, but we can tell you that <laughs> Literally, um, Ukraine is doing its counteroffensive slowly, tactically, but efficiently. Um, we definitely, you from the future already know what's going to happen. We don't. <laughs> so we build various scenarios of factions. Uh, we are preparing for heavy winter. That's that's definitely a, real, a reality check that we are already making. And uh, why I'm saying, because we... Uh, expect uh, that the attacks on our critical infrastructure will continue. So definitely uh, you guys uh, already know that, but I would like to thank every one of our partners and of course British, British people for their uh, absolute support and understanding of uh, how it's important to be shoulder on shoulder or hand by hand together when we are standing in understanding that the aggressor is trying to destroy all of us. Um, you definitely know that uh, uh, we are developing. We are trying to be so much progressive in the uh, aspirations of becoming European Union member. Of course, British people will say, okay, we've been there. We haven't still. <laughs> we are learning. And uh, in December 2023, we are preparing to open in, uh, the negotiations with the European Union. Important for Ukrainians, yes. It's a new step to say, yes, we did that. So we, con con uh, we could progress from step number one, that was in 1997, till step number four, which we expect as Ukrainians, and you already know from the future, in December 2023 for the European Council Summit. We progress also in Euro-Atlantic integration reforms. Uh, why? Because the security guarantees are important for us. And Britain is one of, uh, Great Britain is one of, uh, and United Kingdom in particular, is uh, one of the greatest supporters of uh, providing us this uh, shoulder of support. And uh, you are training our soldiers, uh, our pilots, uh, because uh, the future, what we're expecting is, uh, is relying on jets and also the people who are handing the jets. And um, United Kingdom is doing that already. We're expecting, of course, uh, surprise, surprise, Washington NATO summit in July 2024. Why it's important? Yeah, we have such a big country as the United States, <clears throat> which is thinking uh, uh, about whether to continuously to provide military support uh, of Ukraine and whether to... Um, literally understand and give us chance to open the negotiations with NATO, to becoming the NATO member. As United Kingdom, you definitely know how important it is to be a strong military power. Um, Ukrainians definitely want peace, but we want security uh, and guarantee of that security being provided. Because uh, back in history, long enough ago, in 1995, we declined the third nuclear potential that we had in our country. And if it was a different course of history that time in the 90s, 
we wouldn't be talking with you about this topic today and perhaps we wouldn't have a war even on our territory. Uh, we are fighting for you guys, definitely, because it's not war Russia against Ukraine or Ukrainian uh, uh, versus Russian war. It's not. It's uh, the war against all of the civilized world, again, um, which are standing for the democratic freedom and principles and values. Maybe the for you are already the buzzword, but for us are definitely not. And um, in this nutshell, I can summarize that uh, we're looking forward for this partnership cooperations. How much me as a scholar, as a researcher, is grateful to have an opportunity to develop professionally, uh, being hosted by one of uh, UK institution, uh, and uh, how much it brings me joy of professional talks. That's what I'm talking about, opportunity and chance to develop together and co-create. Because in the future, <clears throat> we will build together. We'll build and continuously... And you'll be interested in the investment in Ukraine because it's a new job market. It's a new prospect, uh, a lot of dynamics. Uh, we'll be uh, interested as well as we are interested in the uh, clean water and clean air. That's why ecological challenges... Uh, you don't think it now, but the Black Sea, North Sea, <laughs> uh, Mediterranean Sea, and all of the oceans are very much interconnected. So whatever happens on the Ukrainian territory, believe me, the British Isles will also suffer from that. Uh, ap apologies for to tell in such a straight truth, but it's true. We're very much interconnected by air, by sea, by land, and now by cyber, so by information domain in particular. Uh, therefore, um, mm. we are not calling, we are just mm. inviting you to continue to save this world <laughs> as it is, because it's on the brink of collapsing. And therefore, it's important for me personally to continue doing my job, to narrate these stories, maybe to have another podcast <laughs> uh, about similar topics in some future timing, um, to research, to talk to get interested, uh, to be flexible, to open myself to some something new professionally, but never give up on something which is precious and valuable, which is my country, my hometown, Vinica. Uh, by the way, I'm inviting you to visit not only Kiev, Vinica, which is um, half a million inhabitants, and uh, I'm one of the advisor, external advisor to the mayor of Vinica, therefore inviting to invest uh, because it's a very interesting potential. We do have a lot of investors already curious why uh, Vinica, despite all of the challenges, as well as other Ukrainian regions, are opening IT hubs, uh, industrial parks, rebuilding roads, even now, in 2023, in comparison with the roads being, for example, bombed or destroyed or partially uh, ruined in 2022. Why these Ukrainians are returning back to their territories and still willing to do that? I mean, this is a part of a very interesting story, and I literally invite you to co-create these new pages of history. Mm. And I, I find it really interesting that you've, I mean, you so you articulate it so beautifully and so well in terms of the Ukrainian side, and and then there's also been all these different reactions from outside, from countries across the globe, and we haven't necessarily 
got time to go into them all, but you've seen the UK's reaction, haven't you? And I wondered what you notice about that, um, because it's useful for us in terms of understanding our own country, our own foreign affairs, and our identity, actually, which is one of the things that we're looking at in this podcast. Yeah, that's a very interesting question, because you have multi uh, multicultural background, which Ukrainians are exploring. We are multicultural country as well, but we never had such a big multicultural background as United Kingdom history uh, is telling us. So this is something we explored from you guys. Uh, experience of narrating in UK was diverse, different sometimes, because uh, of course it depends on the communities how much they want to integrate into the news from Ukraine, how much they sometimes do not want, which is understandable, because you also have your internal challenges. I mean, as every country, as every community, as every family even, right? So you cannot focus all of the time on Ukraine. That's why, uh, I mean, it's important that uh, you have in this podcast and then thousands or maybe millions of people are going to listen to that. Yeah, and it's important also for me to continue the job what I'm doing, because um, we definitely uh, are now building as Ukrainian scholars and researchers uh, the changes in the academic um, backgrounds and academic, what we say, profile and uh, uh, expert uh, circles. Um, we're now saying that Ukrainian studies are Ukrainian studies and they are not part of Russian studies. Uh, it's It's a different domain. So we are exploring. You are studying, guys, Ukrainian language and culture and history, and I'm very much welcoming you to do that because it's a very interesting investment. As I told you just previous times ago, as my dear colleague Italians are doing that, they are very much pragmatic. They're saying, why should we do that? And, they, and there is a perfect response for that because if you want to invest into something new, you have to know what's going on there. How better know what's going on there if you do not learn the language, the history, the culture, if you do not understand it. So therefore, creating of some of uh, such lectures was a kind of priority for me. We're doing it with our colleagues. And um, we are very much relying that you can listen to these or some others, doesn't matter uh, which one, but just uh, trying to be curious, you know. Um, open. We are very much curious about your cultures, your diverse cuisines that we have. That's that's something that uh, we are still exploring. Uh, sometimes I do not agree with the weather that you have. That's true, <laughs> um, because we definitely have a different weather and climate. Of course, we we are we are a slightly different country, and uh, in this respect, I'm missing all of the time Ukraine because I love much more sunny days than I do have them in back in Britain. But at the same time, it's an uh, it's a more uh, to understand also how much your identity is different from ours and how much we can learn from each other. Mm, uh, British people, what I see, especially with those military experts with whom I'm, let's say, talking or having the opportunity to meet, uh, they are very much interested in our, what we say, combat experience. Because it's true, uh, yes, we have heavy losses in terms of people both military and civilians, but in terms of combat experience, we have much more of experience than you guys do. And that's why 
the curiosity, what we say, or investment into the Ukrainian language is a very strategic investment one. And especially if you want to have a job in Ukraine, believe me, you're going to be very much pretty paid for that. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, many, uh, surprise, surprise, we are opening Ukrainian businesses in Great Britain. I know one of uh, honey companies open its presence in Great Britain. And we are thankful for you because now you have the variety of products even to taste Ukraine, how different tastes of Ukrainian cuisine can be. We're still waiting for some more restaurants to open, not only in London, but some other cities. <laughs> so I'm welcoming the people to also invest uh, in those, uh, let's say, business projects. If you hear from Ukrainians, if they want to open Ukrainian, I don't know, cafes or restaurants, because tasting the culture is something very unique, you know, and it opens much more the doors and rooms for reflections. Uh, and it's a very tasty cuisine, by the way. So... Very strategic investment, I tell you. Uh, and uh, last but not least, uh, uh, we love humor. British people are known for its special humor. We do know that as well. But we also have Ukrainian humor, which I very much invite you to explore. Uh, my experience in traveling Britain was uh, pretty much wide because I was in different counties, but also different uh, uh, corners of United Kingdom. Uh, uh, and I must say that I, I, I'm so, I'm so blessed if it's possible to frame it like that by how much open people are, how much curious they are, how supportive they are, uh, and, uh, how much they want to open their homes and hearts, uh, for us, for many of the Ukrainians that the United Kingdom is hosting. Uh, many families and um, uh, how kids uh, in particular with whom I had the privilege to talk, uh, they are, you know, trying to understand the British culture, uh, contribute to that and make these new friendships and future partnerships. I always, I found it interesting as well when we were talking previously that you talked about the strong British response at the beginning, cross-party, yes. sort of yes. government and nation. And and it was interesting because when you were describing it and we were talking through it, I I suddenly, I, I guess my response was, well, of course, of course, um, particularly around the spirit to fight and to pursue victory and to... Um, find a strength within the nation to do that and I remember thinking it, it makes so much sense to me because the second world war is so present in in British history um, it's, it's not just from grandparents and stories that are passed on through families but it's very present in tv programs books it's often the setting of films it's many songs phrases you know there's there's still a lot that's very alive around um our experience as a country I guess of uh yeah resisting <laughs> and fighting and I, I can add uh, and uh, elaborate on that uh, mm. only by saying it's uh, uh 
I don't know why I'm always told, talking about economy and finance, but it's important, as you understand also. Uh, UK is uh, literally, because of that, also currently the second largest donor to our economy. UK committed uh, £2.6 billion pounds in military assistance only, uh, I mean, half of that was in 2022, Uh, the second half is happening already in 2023. As I was train, uh, saying already, it, it uh, hosts our military. It's training programs, uh, which supported by several allies as well. But for a moment, it's 30,000 of Ukrainian um, military experts and uh, soldiers, what we say, Ukrainian personnel, is going to be trained by the end of this year. So, um, uh, London also hosted uh, Ukraine's Reform Conference in June this year when we actually met with you and, uh, I mean, uh, contributed to elaborating what what uh, what sectors of support might be. And, of course, um, thinking about justice in particular, uh, United Kingdom provides literally the expert support on lit uh, how to bring Uh, Russia accountable in terms of justice in all of uh, in all of the forums, uh, free asset sanctions that you provided, uh, also uh, um, sanctions on uh, some of uh, sectors of Russian economy, specific individual sanctions that UK had, even on I know on uh, precious stones like diamonds uh, 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 coming from Russian federations, one of the latest developments. That uh, doesn't. Uh, You know, it doesn't happen because we are Ukrainians or you are um, British people. That comes because of understanding of how much challenges our countries had in our previous historical pages. Not being close geographically, but very close mentally mm. in, into this respect. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's um, yeah, I think it gives us a lot to reflect on. And... One of the persistent themes we've been touching on it throughout throughout our conversation so far, I think, is courage, determination, morale, um, you know, an incredible spirit of Ukrainians. And I it's been something that's I think impressed the world. Um It's been something that's invited the rest of the world to join together to do to to, to support you, um, but I can't imagine it's easy. And I wondered yourself, how do you keep your morale up? You know, how do you keep um, optimistic as well as pragmatic and realistic, as you said, as you have to check check social media every day and and keep up with a lot of very difficult news. You know, Anna, when you ask how can Anna, I keep in my morale up, I was like looking up and thinking, am I keeping my morale up or not at <laughs> this very moment? <laughs> Literally, I didn't have a time to think about that, but I definitely understand the preconditions of your questions because it's stressful. Uh, when you have a lot of what we say information, we uh, we have to analyze, uh, uh, digest, to be precise. So that might be the word <laughs> to tell it, because uh, every one of us, especially in this information domain world, we are digesting millions uh, of or, let's say terabytes of information, to be precise. Right? Uh, to be efficient at the same time. So humor helps. Friends help. 
Sport helps. <laughs> yeah. uh, keeping me busy helps uh, a lot because uh, I, I love what I'm doing. And just because I'm passionate about what I'm doing, that's what uh, keeps me. I don't say I'm just optimistic because I am keeping optimistic or I'm just having this wishful thinking. I'm trying to uh, do what I can in order what we say I think I was saying in the beginning, like not only dreaming, but acting in order to this dream become true. Even if I understand it's going to be a long marathon, you know, not 42 kilometers. I don't know how many kilometers, <laughs> uh, but it's important. That's why, yes, it's important to not only digest, sometimes debrief, uh, rethink, restart and continue. So... I think that helps and uh, I want to see future younger generations being back to Ukraine. That's one of the biggest motivator and I believe my students are the biggest motivator for me, you know, to continue doing what I'm doing because it's also for themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. And I wanted to just take a slightly different angle and ask you a question because I, I think through challenging times, we learn a lot, right? And sure. we observe we observe things. And I wondered from your experience, what have you learned about leadership or what have you seen about leadership? And I don't just mean, I mean, obviously political leadership is in there, but also community leadership, um, leadership across different sectors. What have you observed about uh, really sort of inspiring and excellent leadership that you'll be taking, absorbing and taking forward, perhaps in your own career? Uh, Anadra, absolutely brilliant question. I, I, I literally thinking how to answer that. I believe um, first and most important lesson is, uh, and it was a lesson definitely in 2022, we understood that we have the president at its position or on its uh, on its position properly that time because uh, that was one of the key moment for the history and turning moment to be precisely for the history of our country. Uh, if we had a different president, I mean not the name but the style of uh, leadership, right, and the position uh, of how to let's say continue, maybe we'll we will not be talking even with you. So that's uh, absolutely a reality check. A second more point, um, it's more uh, that my students are uh, trying, are actually the best uh, driver or the brilliant driver for me to master my style of leadership for them. Because I'm mostly thinking leader is about the role model, but also mentor. So I see myself more as the mentor and the role model to you know, lead by example. I uh, uh, That was one of the, let's say, biggest uh, thoughts, reflections, especially in the first uh, days of the full-scale invasion, what to do, how to do, and for whom to do that. And this for whom was a kind of uh, something that sparkled uh, the light <laughs> inside that personal tunnel, right? Because when you have a lot of cows in your mind, you need a moment of peace and calmness in order to just rebuild and redesign yourself. That's the second one. Third one, um, people who are surrounding me, they became what we say partners in leadership. <laughs> they are mastering me and I believe 
now it's a perfect chance for me to become and uh, to see how much progress personally and professionally I made. So it's also um, feeling myself happy. That's true. Despite all of these dark moments, despite all of these shades that we do have, and no matter how long or short this moment gonna be, feel itself inside this happiness and the moment to express, realize, talk, and act. This is, I believe, my personal lesson, even for myself. <laughs> what were your three words? They were dream, act, and fight. In my case, I was telling fight because it's not only acting, but it's literally fighting. So it's extra acting Um, because that's how it keeps not only my morale up, but the countries up and uh, fight for something that you love. So it's more than acting normally, right? So it's more something going deliberately into actions. That's why I fight. I, 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 I I take it myself as three words (laughs) yeah I love them I love them and you you hear it coming across I think across the board one of my observations I think around leadership is just the incredible power of mobilizing an entire nation to as you say fight but in many different ways in many different sectors anything that people are able to do bringing it to the table and that's it's an incredible mobilization that's happened and the energy and the messages that you that you hear are are deeply inspiring you know i can share one personal thing uh First hours of the full-scale invasion, one of my friends calls me uh, from another country and I'm asking him, because he is a military expert, how much time do I have? And his reply, I I still remember, Uh, he didn't tell me exact hours, but definitely we knew that. Um, He was saying, now you become, now it's the time to become hero. Not because you're willing, but because you have to. So (laughs) even if it's... uh, That was literally something that I learned. Uh, It's not because we are uh, are heroes, all of us. And uh, I've seen the examples, even if my closest circle, but not only in the far circles, how people, normal people become extraordinary people. And um, that's why I think we will never give up on something that we love, passionate about. That's why this normal, what we say, normal style act becomes a fight in a positive sense. This is something that you love and being passionate about. That's fantastic. Um, any last messages? What, what's, your, what's the last thing that you would like to tell the listeners of the podcast about Ukraine that it's not the last podcast that we are making that's <laughs> what I, <want> to say. <laughs> I love that you can be the resident Ukraine expert <laughs> that comes back and we'll then we'll then talk to ourselves back to October 2023 <laughs> I love it where can people find you if they want to reach out to you 
Uh, it's my like my name and surname, and I have also the YouTube channels that I'm trying to promote now. So I'll definitely have this video uploaded there as well, with your permission, Anna Joy. And uh, uh, I'm trying now to be very active in LinkedIn. I think uh, that's also important that, I mean, these programs like you are having, podcasts or just programs uh, with some other Ukrainian, uh, what we say, normal, extraordinary people. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Victoria. What an absolute honor and privilege. <laughs> Thanks to you, Anna Joy. Thank you for listening to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, where Britain meets the world. Subscribe today, share it with a friend or colleague, and be part of shaping Britain's role on the global stage.